mystery, but questions that Jesus might be posing to us this morning as well. So last week, Pete did a, a, just a brilliant job of, of unpacking this question, um, really Jesus' invitation to consider with him what the kingdom of God means, what it means to us, what it means to the world. And it feels very timely to be considering about those things. I, I really appreciated the chance to have a bit of, uh, I guess, a bit of a corridor with Jesus um, about my own understandings of the kingdom, maybe my own misunderstandings of what's happening in the world today. So thanks, Pete, for making that happen. Um, <clears throat> this morning's question touches on the issue of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus and to choose him as our Lord. It'll also... Um, force us to consider what the cost of discipleship is um, or the cost of giving our allegiance to Jesus might be. Um, and rather, rather than sort of burying the lead, I'll, I'll just say that the question for this morning is, um, comes from Mark 3.33, and the question is, who are my mother and who are my brothers? And we can only blame Mark for the grammar problems in that sentence, um, but that's what it says. Um, so... But before we get to that question, um, I'm just going to do a quick flyover of Mark 3. That's where we are, but it's good to kind of get a bit of a bird's eye view of what's going on in the chapter, because I think it will help us to get, get to Jesus' question with a little, a little more clarity. Um, I do have a slide show somewhere, but it might pop up eventually. Um, we, we always are having technical challenges here, but I think we'll get to that in a moment. Anyway, as I mentioned last time, Oh, we're up. Great. Um, so as I mentioned last time, um, Mark's prologue, the sort of opening lines of the Gospel of Mark, give us this neat key to unlock the rest of his Gospel. Um, or another metaphor I've been thinking about with that is that Mark acts a little bit like um, the, the ticket agent at a, at a cinema who welcomes us into the cinema and gives us those little cardboard... 3D goggles or, or glasses that'll help us to see the picture in three dimensions. So if you're not wearing those glasses when you go in to watch the film, you're going to get a blurry image, you're going to get a confusing image. Mark's like, before you start reading, put these on. And, and his lenses are these three things. So the good news, or the, what I talked about last, week, uh, last time, um, the, the good news of God's kingdom, the good news is of God returning to his people as king. Um, and the second one is Jesus Christ, or Jesus the Christ, it probably should say for us, um, which is just a shorthand expression for saying that Jesus is the summary of the whole Old Testament's hopes about um, God appointing and anointing a new kind of human to rule over his people. And then the third one, Son of God, which is, uh, again, a, a very theologically dense term, um, but basically an expression of obedience to the will of God. So the Son and the Father are one, as the Gospel of John does a, a good job of emphasizing. So to be, this, to be Son of God means to, you see Jesus, you see the Father. So Mark needs us to know that, that, that Jesus is somehow both God's agent, um, both God's agent and, and God himself. He's, he's somehow mysteriously both of those things at once. And the whole of chapter 3 is this record of two kinds of responses that Jesus is going to get. Um, 
two kinds of responses that people will give Jesus as they encounter him. So on the one hand, Mark 3 can really be read as a, almost a litany of, of opposition and offense to Jesus, particularly among the political and the, um, the religious leaders of his community. So as we saw with the healing of the, the paralytic and the absolution of his sins, um, instead of celebrating this beautiful miracle, this beautiful act of compassion, the, the scribes and Pharisees really just experience it as a profane and insulting gesture. Um, and then later on, they're further scandalized by the way Jesus will willingly sit and eat with, with what they think of as the scum of society, the, the people, the, the rejects who you would not want to associate with. And then, um, and then they start having a go at Jesus' disciples themselves um, for being sort of so impious and undisciplined, for not fasting like all the other religious champions of the day. And it's kind of like they're asking Jesus, do you realize how um, embarrassing your followers are? Do you see what they're doing? Um, and why have you not reined them in? Um, I mean, are they merely ignorant of, of the traditions? Because if, if not, then they're intentionally breaking the traditions, which is basically akin to rejecting their Jewish identity. So throughout the Gospel of Mark, there's this growing opposition, this, this building pressure around Jesus. And that culminates in, in another healing story. Um, but this time it's in the synagogue, and this time it's on the Sabbath. And Mark, I think Mark is such a great writer. He's, he's such a, um, yeah, he captures the action so well. I'm just going to read it to us. Um, and as a bonus, there's another little question in there. So you'll get two, a two for one this morning. So here we are again. He, that's Jesus, entered the synagogue, and a man was there who had a withered hand. They, the Pharisees, wanted to see whether he would cure him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, Come forward. Then he said to them, Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. He looked around at them with anger. He was grieved at their hardness of heart and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately conspired with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. I find it interesting that this is the only time in Scripture that Jesus is mentioned as getting angry. Uh, not even in clearing the temple is Jesus described as angry. But this, in this moment, this total failure of compassion on the part of the Pharisees, this provokes a kind of holy anger in Jesus and a, and a mixture of anger and grief. And Je Jesus chooses to heal the man. Um, and in doing so, he does another miracle, which is he unites these two opposing factions of Judaism, the Herodians and the Pharisees, who hated each other. Jesus manages to bring them together in a common cause. Um, they found common cause in this plot to destroy Jesus, to put an end to Jesus. So what's the lesson? Well, without the proper lenses on, without those, those 3D glasses, 
Um, Jesus really appears as either a madman or as a, a kind of a devil, uh, especially to those who have taken on responsibility for the, for the life of the community, um, especially for the leaders and for those in power. When they encounter Jesus without those lenses on, they see him as trouble, as a problem that needs to be dealt with. But how do the crowds see him? Because that's the other side of the equation. Mark points out that wherever Jesus went, a great multitude followed him. And this, you know, so many people followed Jesus that, um, that it says that, he, that Jesus had to ask the disciples to have a boat ready for him because the crowds, you know, because of the crowds, so they wouldn't crush him. So you can imagine, I don't know if you've seen pictures of the, um, um, some of the religious festivals in India, but where there's great sort of crowds of people and water and push and, and bodies. It's this kind of scene of Jesus was surrounded by people. Um, he had to be on a boat to avoid being crushed. Um, it also, he also writes, Mark writes in verse 10, that, that all who had diseases pressed upon him to touch him, Jesus. And whenever unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and shouted, you are the son of God. So, clearly, the crowds weren't offended by Jesus. The crowds were captivated by Jesus. And the demons in their midst seemed to consistently spit out the most theologically sound doctrine in the whole New Testament. The demons know what's going on. Um, you are the Son of God. They recognize it straight away. So what we're witnessing, I guess, in these two, these two juxtaposing um, responses to Jesus uh, is that, yeah, that, that there's always going to be this divide. And the more time people spend with Jesus, it's like the more the middle ground shrinks between, yeah, that there's no longer room on the fence. You have to sort of decide one way or the other. So Jesus is forcing these, um, these decisions, these crises of decisions, and people are going clearly one way or the other. So they're either with Jesus or they're against him. <clears throat> and in the next scene, Jesus calls, Jesus begins to call people by name. He calls them from the crowd and challenges them to put, to put their allegiance in him. The text reads that Jesus, he went up the mountain and called to him those whom he wanted. And they came to him and he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles to be with him and to be sent out to proclaim the message and to have authority to cast out demons. So I thought we could just pause here for a moment on this text <clears throat> and have a think about um, what that might feel like, what that might feel like to, to be in a crowd and to have Jesus call your name out because he wants you to be with him, to have him say, um, come up here, come up here, Libby, come up here, Emma, Come up here, Kevin. Come up here, Grant. I want you to be with me. What would it feel like to hear your name called? To, to hear Jesus call your name, to identify you, to see your face, and speak to you and say, I want you to be with me. Because Jesus is forming a new people. He's forming uh, a new people with a new identity and a new vocation in the face of great hostility. He's calling people to be appointed, to be with him, to be sent out, 
to proclaim his message, his message and to be given authority to, be, to cast out demons. This is what it means to be a Christian. It means to be given all of these things, to be known by Jesus, to be called to be with him, to be, um, to be uh, sent out to proclaim his message. <clears throat> so Jesus called each of us as well in the same way and sent us out into the world to represent him. The question at this point is, do we believe this is true? Do we believe that we have been called out by name, each of us? Because it's important that we consider that question before we get to the next question. So on to our passage. Jesus has called these people together. He's up on the mountain. He's called them by name. And then he goes home. A lot of text here, but um, a bit like last last time, I'm just going to read it out. But what I encourage you to do at home and and here is um, is just enter into the scene as best you can. So it might help to close your eyes, um, make yourself comfortable, and um, as much as possible, open yourself to God, open your imagination to Him, and expect that He might um, speak to you. That said, don't try and strain to hear something if it's not there. Just, just be with Jesus as I read this passage. And the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he's possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he cast out the demons. And he, he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. I don't know how you picture that scene, but I sort of imagine a, a small house um, just crammed full of people. Um, it's, it's packed to the rafters with people spilling out all, all over the place, and, and Jesus is somehow 
stuffed in the corner there. Um, there's people on either side of him. There's people around him on a, at his feet. Um, it's hot. It's sticky. Um, and people have noticed that in the room, there are these scribes that have come from Jerusalem, uh, a five-day walk from Jerusalem to Nazareth. So they've made this journey, these sort of big shots that have come to, to figure out what's going on with this Jesus guy, what's the story, what's he doing. And I can imagine that the, the, local, um, the local people, the local Nazarenes are probably feeling excited and maybe a little bit intimidated by, this, by these scribes that are in the room. And then out come these, these, these outright challenges to Jesus, um, this open hostility to Jesus. The scribes from Jerusalem start denouncing him in front of, in front of the people and also chiding the crowd for being so gullible, um, for falling for this con artist who's clearly fooling them with his, with his, with his dark arts and powers of persuasion. <clears throat> and maybe, you know, thinking about it, maybe those people who are up on the mountain with Jesus, those people who are called by name are in the room as well. And I wonder what, what they might be thinking and what they might be feeling um, in that moment of tension, in that moment where these powerful men are speaking against Jesus in front of the crowd, um, maybe they're sort of slowly shrinking back in their seats. Maybe they're slowly trying to disappear into the wall, um, feeling unsure, feeling um, maybe, maybe they've been hoodwinked. Um, I think it's a, it's a common feeling perhaps in the face of hostility um, that our allegiance to Jesus can sort of feel challenged. And then we hear that, that Mary and James and Jude are outside and they can't get into the house because it's, it's just so cram-packed full of people. And still the message gets relayed you know, through, through the whispering of pe- person to person um, until it reaches Jesus that his family is here and they wanted to have uh, you know, a few words with Jesus outside. Basically, they, they want to stop him from getting into any more trouble. And as Mark recalls it, uh, Jesus' mother and his siblings just believed he was straight out of his mind. He was crazy. And they were probably embarrassed and, and worried about themselves and worried about their reputation and worried about the family. But Jesus is, is clear. He's clear throughout this story in his identity. He's clear in his mission. He knows that his ministry is guided and suffused by the Holy Spirit. He knows that his calling is from the Father. And he points out um, not only the, in those parables, he points out not only the sort of absurdity of what the the scribes are saying, you know, um, that his Satan-crushing ministry is the work of Satan. He's like, that's absurd. Um, How can Satan cast out Satan? But also he points out this tragic irony with the scribes um, of labeling the work of the Holy Spirit as satanic basically how far away from god do you have to be to see god's work and call that satanic he's saying that kind of spiritual rot is incurable but what about the response to his family i mean that that line who are my mother and my brothers like mary who um James? No, I'd never heard of him. Um, this total, this total um, blanking on, 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 the, on, the, on his family, on his, on his kin. It certainly seems to go against the idea of 
the uh, Christian family values, doesn't it? Um, this idea of Christian family values. Jesus is saying, who are my brothers? Who is my mother? <clears throat> and even later on in Mark 10, Jesus seems to suggest that this kind of ambivalent relationship to family, um, to, to blood relations, is, is perhaps even normative, a normative part of discipleship. He says, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields to, for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundredfold uh, in the age to come. So what are we to make of this? <clears throat> is Jesus anti-family? Is he the anti-family values preacher? Um, <laughs> well, I, I, I'm going to tease this out in, in our email out on Monday with a few more resources. But, um, uh, but for now, I really just want us to return to the question, maybe in a more personal way, and look closely at his words in this setting, in this setting of hostility. Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Whoever does the will of God, he is my mother and brother and sister. So what is our response to this question of Jesus's? Who are my mother and my brothers? In the face of great hostility, in the face of controversy, are we with him? Will we be with him? How strong is our allegiance to him? Um, is it stronger than family ties? Is it stronger than work obligations? Is it stronger than social pressure? Is it stronger than the norms of our culture? Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. And we might ask, well, how do we know the will of God? How do we know if we are doing that? And um, I, I would refer back to what Pete was talking about last week, that, that when, we, when we know the king, we know the kingdom. Really, the will of God is, is contained in Jesus. Our, our answer to those questions is to come back to Jesus himself. We know his will only by being with him, by surrendering our will to him, by saying yes when he calls our name, when he speaks to us in the crowd and says, I want you to be with me by surrendering our reputation, by surrendering our status to him. And all of these are costly, but they are worth it. I think that's the message. They're worth it. They're worth more than anything. To surrender um, ourselves to him, to surrender, uh, yeah, to, to, to throw our whole allegiance into, into him is the invitation of discipleship. So it's a <clears throat> so it's a, a challenging question for this week, but it's one to I think continue to consider prayerfully. And really, I don't want it to feel like a heavy burden, this message, but more of a challenge. And the invitation is again that it's simply to just return to Jesus. It always is the same in that sense, to discover our identity in Christ 
to find the will of God, to find ourselves in his family, is simply to be with him. And so with that, um, we're going to shift gears again, and we're going to have communion, which again is an invitation to encounter Jesus and to be with him. So I'm going to hand it over to you, Katie, and God bless you all.